2: or text WONDERYPOD Pod to 500 500.
3: Good morning, I'm Charles Osgood, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. We'll be spending the morning in the low country of South Carolina by design. This is Aldbrass, a modern day plantation designed by the legendary architect Frank Lloyd Wright. It's roughly midway between Charleston, South Carolina and Savannah, Georgia. Historic places with different approaches to preserving their heritage. It's a tale of two cities as Lee Cowan will report in our cover story.
4: Savannah, Georgia, and Charleston, South Carolina, historic cities of the South, faced with a design dilemma.
5: The question is, how do we move forward? How do we honor our past? And how do we point toward a future?
6: You can have a great preservation achievement, and you can have a robust economy at the same time. Preservation and progress ahead. On Sunday morning. As a
3: look around the house and grounds here demonstrates, good design can reveal itself in ways big and small.
5: They're made in Mexico.
3: Luke Burbank this morning shows us how small things can make a world of difference.
7: They say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But good design, that's something everyone can appreciate, no matter what neighborhood you live in.
5: I think the notion that because somebody is poor, they don't have the same appreciation for uh, beauty or function is completely erroneous.
8: This is a stove from India for making chapatis. Creating high design
7: at low cost. Later on Sunday morning. Cleaning windows
3: at Albrass is a pretty down-to-earth operation. But cleaning them on a soaring skyscraper, that's just a bit more challenging. This morning, Mo those windows architects design them construction
9: workers build them boy this is good exercise but who cleans them i don't do windows well unless i'm window washing a skyscraper on the 38th floor how am i doing wrist action okay ahead on sunday morning
3: Richard Schlesinger introduces us to the simplicity of shaker design. Jane Pauley looks at architecture you can take to the bank. Next, The Low Country by design.
10: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: By the time Aldbrice was designed... The nearby cities of Charleston and Savannah were both more than 200 years old. How they deal with the challenge of historic preservation makes for a genuine tale of two cities. Our cover story is reported now by Lee Cowan.
4: They are two bells of the South, Savannah, Georgia, and Charleston, South Carolina. About 100 miles apart, they've been rivals for centuries debating everything from which has the best manners to which makes the sweetest tea. But these cities have something in common, too, just how to preserve their moss-draped southern charm without turning their backs on progress. There's a lot of jealousy between the two of them, I must say. (laughs) Retired American history professor John Duncan was born in Charleston, but has spent the last 50 years in Savannah. His home off Monterey Square was built in 1869. How can you keep a city like this charming and preserve its history and yet still move forward at the same time? Well, many Savannians would say we wouldn't want to move
2: forward at the same time. (laughs) We're happy just the way we are, thank you very much.
4: Many in Charleston might say the same thing. And that's the design dilemma. While it's tempting to want to put these historic cities in formaldehyde to embalm them, and shun anything modern. Charleston's mayor, Joe Riley, says that's not a viable answer.
6: A historic city should be a living place because if you don't have that, then it's a former something. A former once great city, but now it's pretty to see.
4: Charleston has the oldest historic district in the country. It's carefully preserved the city's grand public buildings, as well as the mansions along the battery and, of course, the famous Rainbow Row. The city's signature style, however, is the Charleston Single House, tall, slender homes with two-tiered porches. They're called piazzas here. That sometimes look out over a private garden. It's an architectural fabric that new buildings have a hard time matching.
6: You know, it's like there is this beautiful painting, that has been painted, and you have an opportunity to paint something within that beautiful painting. You've got to be careful that in what you paint there, you don't detract from the overall context of what has been created.
4: It's up to Charleston's Board of Architectural Review to approve new construction, and sometimes the mayor himself gets involved, as he did with the architect of a proposed parking garage.
6: I said, I want a a building that doesn't look like a parking garage. This was a long time ago. And he very nicely explained to me that's not what you do. And I said, no, that's what we're doing in Charleston.
4: This is what resulted. A garage that actually won the Federal Design Achievement Award. Then there's Charleston Place, a 400-room hotel that did pass the city's muster, but only after it was built to fit with the style of the buildings around it. The same is true of this $142 million performance hall set to open in October. But for modernist architects like Ray Huff, Charleston's restrictions can make new design a bit tricky.
3: What we're having now is a bit of clash of
6: values, as it were,
0: and trying to determine how do we find that right balance.
4: When Clemson University designed this contemporary building to house the school's architecture center in Charleston, it was met with such opposition, the plans had to be scrapped. The
3: process of going through getting permits and what have you for, for a building is an extremely
4: difficult process in Charleston. The same debate is ringing throughout Savannah, although here, historic preservation takes on a little different tone. Is there a general sense about sort of modern contemporary architecture coming into Savannah?
5: I think we embrace it. I think we embrace it, but we ask serious questions about whether this building will contribute to the city.
4: Christian Sotil (laughs) is the dean of the School of (laughs) Building Arts at the Savannah College of Art and Design. And he's the architect behind this, the school's new museum of art.
5: We set out to design a building that would communicate across three centuries.
4: It's a contemporary building, but one that incorporates what was left of the oldest surviving antebellum railroad depot in the country.
5: We actually like to use the term creative preservation. Historic is looking backwards, and preservation sounds like you're just kind of hanging on. That's not very hopeful. Where creative preservation is making and saving. It's both.
4: That depot is one of more than 70 historic sites that Savannah's College of Art and Design has saved and repurposed. Everything from a former county jail to what used to be a 19th century armory.
11: It really is a living laboratory.
4: Many of the buildings, like this one, look out on perhaps Savannah's best-known feature, its squares. There are 22 of them in all, a design unique to Savannah. In fact, it's considered one of the nation's first planned cities. While it's not as old as Charleston, Savannah's historic district is much larger, stretching from the waterfront, where buildings like Savannah's Cotton Exchange still stand, to neighborhoods where homes with gas lanterns and intricate ironworks sit beneath the Spanish moss. For purists, this is what makes Savannah, and the new can still spark controversy. The 64,000-square-foot Jepsen Center for the Arts, for example, designed by Moshe Safdie, was pretty tough to get by Savannah's historic review board, and some still don't like it today. Uh, it's got a grand
2: staircase filled with glass, but maybe not so appropriate for an historic city like Savannah. These port
4: cities of the South, Savannah and Charleston, are survivors. They've outlived fires, hurricanes, slavery, and, of course, war. They surely will survive design disputes, but not without a fight.
3: Coming up, keeping it simple.
12: What's the thing on the bottom? That is an extra drawer. The Shakers didn't like to waste space. Welcome to
10: Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Frank Lloyd Wright custom-designed furniture to echo the hexagonal floor plan of this country retreat. Not very practical if you've ever wanted to move. By contrast, Richard Schlesinger introduces us to a furniture-making tradition whose designs
13: couldn't be more practical. At the Hancock Shaker Village in far western Massachusetts, they have always kept things simple and clean. It's a museum now where visitors can see classic furniture designed centuries ago by the Shakers. The lines of the furniture are as clean as the rooms it inhabits. Leslie Hertzberg is the curator.
12: They weren't thinking of it as being beautiful, but they were thinking of it as being functional, that streamlined, simple what we now say as beautiful design is a they result. They didn't mean for it
13: to be beautiful. They
12: didn't. It's beautiful to our eyes, but they wouldn't have referred to it as beautiful.
13: These no frills, no flourishes chairs may be the best-known legacy of shaker design. The Shakers came to the U.S. from England and established themselves as a Christian sect in the late 18th century. Their design style followed their lifestyle. It is simple and, above all, practical. This is a blanket chest made in the 1800s. What's the thing on the bottom?
12: That is an extra drawer. The Shakers didn't like to waste space. And so if there was an additional way to use the space more efficiently, the Shakers would find it.
13: They were an innovative group that came up with new ways to solve old problems.
12: As is human nature, everyone wants to tip back in their chair. It's true. (laughs) It is true. And so the Shakers did the same thing. But what the Shakers figured out was in order to preserve the chair and also to preserve their floors, if you added this tiny little design element to the back posts of your chairs you could preserve both that back post and your floor.
13: This is brilliant. So it it swivels, if I may, Mm -hmm. it swivels with the chairs. You go back.
12: This is brilliant. Invented by the shakers. (laughs) And now seen on most classroom chairs for kids.
13: In their heyday in the 19th century, there were roughly 6,000 shakers in nearly two dozen communities from Maine to Kentucky. Their founder was a woman known as Mother Ann. They lived communally, so cleanliness became, if not next to godliness, at least really close.
12: Mother Ann once said there is no dirt in heaven. And so keeping your living quarters and your eating quarters and your work quarters clean was very important. And so that's why you have things like the shaker built-ins, so you don't have to clean on top or beneath them.
13: In fact, a lot of shaker design evolved from the necessity to tidy up. Among other things, they invented the flat broom. And are the pegs, which you see in every shaker thing, are they are they for hats or what?
12: They're for almost anything. So not only could you push your, your chair under the table, you could also hang it up on your peg.
13: And why and, would you do that?
12: Well, if you wanted to clean underneath it, but you would often hang it upside down so that dust wouldn't gather on the seat.
13: They brought this trestle from this lower, where it normally would have been, in this lower position. They brought it up into this upper position. Ian Ingersoll is a furniture maker in West Cornwall, Connecticut. And they brought it up to that position so that they could clean under every table every day. It's easier to get a mop under this easier than to get a mop. if there was a trestle yes. Yes. cutting off half of the table. Right. Full disclosure here, Ingersoll is my neighbor. These are the peg racks and the the chair. He has spent decades studying and following shaker design. In the design world, we use the word to shakerize, almost like it was a verb, meaning to simplify it to its simplest form. Ingersoll makes shaker furniture, but he also makes more contemporary pieces, frequently with a glance back at the shakers. And as a matter of fact that aesthetic has really driven most of modern furniture design for the last 50 years the shakers designs have stood the test of time and influenced furniture makers of more recent times but time might finally be catching up with them since the beginning shakers have been celibate so new members can be hard to come by
12: mother ann once said that once the number of shakers dwindles to how, as many as you can count on one hand, that there will be a resurgence. And maybe that's still true.
13: Where once there were 6,000 shakers, today there are just a handful living together in Maine, perhaps the last of their kind. As soon
11: as he walks on there, it goes down. Ah.
13: Just ahead, the smasher. <laughs> we
3: build a better mousetrap.
10: Ah, him. <laughs> Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
13: From the
3: low country of South Carolina, it's a Sunday morning by design. Here again is Charles Osgood. This piazza was designed by Eric Lloyd Wright, the grandson of Frank Lloyd Wright. Simple Practical, good design. This morning, Susan Spencer is taking a look at some other timeless designs.
1: How many traps do you think you have? Um,
11: Total,
3: I have over forty-five
11: hundred traps. And at
1: Tom Parr's mm-hmm. Trap History mm-hmm. Museum outside mm-hmm. Columbus, Ohio, it's easy to feel well a little trapped.
11: I guess it's been a lifelong obsession to collect things and probably in the late 1980s i decided i wanted to collect animal traps of all sizes
1: all sizes all shapes his quirky collection lines the walls floor to ceiling
11: this one will impale
1: delighting a couple hundred equally trap happy visitors a year and when they walk in and see all this what's the usual reaction
11: most of them are somewhat overwhelmed
1: Par treasures them all.
11: They would set this like so.
1: But one and, uh, seems to hold a special place in his heart.
11: As a mouse comes up to in get goes, the peanut butter, boom, boom he gets caught.
1: <laughs> that basic household standby, patented over a century ago, a timeless design as perfect today as it was back then.
11: It's so simple. They tried to change it. Uh, They rebuild it, but it still goes right back to the same thing, a wood base with a spring-loaded arm that comes down and annihilates the mouse.
1: Annihilates. Annihilates. (laughs) (laughs) very delicately said. Yes, right. (laughs) But despite its dead-on success, roughly 15 inventors a year for almost a century have gotten patents for a supposedly improved version. There's that famous quote, build a better mousetrap, the world will be the path to your door. People seem to have taken that
11: to heart. I think they have, yes.
1: So this is the room devoted to mousetraps?
11: Yes, this is it. Wow.
1: Here reside some 1,500 mostly failed attempts at mousetrap perfection.
11: As soon as he walks on there, it goes down, Ah. and it's called the smasher. There's one that is called the electrocuter.
1: Featuring some astonishingly creative means <laughs> to the same gruesome end.
11: This is a four-hole choker. Here's one called the Iron Cat. The mouse goes in this chamber.
1: I'm starting to feel sorry for the mouse.
11: <laughs> Don't.
1: <laughs> for par, the case for the timeless, spring-loaded design is open and shut. After all, who can really argue with this? Except, maybe, the mouse.
6: Coming up...
14: We're building a new bank, and the architect says, transparency.
3: A matter of interest.
10: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: You can put a lot of money into restoring and maintaining a place like Altbrass, or you could take the more conventional approach and put it in a bank. Jane Pauly takes the measure of those pillars of commerce.
14: Today, the corner bank is as common as a coffee shop and equally imposing.
0: For some, this is a phone.
14: It's kind of surprising there are buildings at all.
0: For
2: Susan,
14: when your bank is in the cloud,
2: it's an entire bank.
14: But it wasn't always this way. The bank used to be synonymous with imposing, even monumental, like this one built in 1924. Now called Gotham Hall, it's a venue for weddings and special occasions.
15: This was the last great classical bank built in New York City and probably in the United States. The columns are five feet in diameter of solid limestone. They're 40 feet high.
14: Charles Belfour is an architect and historian.
15: You'd go into the tiniest town in America and you'd find this really ornate classical bank. Even as a kid, I knew it was a fancy building and that it was a special building, you know, just like a church would be.
14: Like a church, the coffered ceiling and soaring pillars were intended to inspire awe and reverence for money.
15: The vault was sort of the heart. They were these bright, shiny objects of strength.
14: And the vault was a showpiece, built to be seen, admired, and trusted. They wanted to show the
15: depositor that their money was absolutely safe.
14: But it was an illusion. Banks could fail, and often did.
15: Throughout America's financial history, hundreds and hundreds of banks failed, and the depositors would lose every nickel they had.
14: And yet, only a year after hundreds of banks went under, in the Great Panic of 1893... Bowery Savings Bank built this majestic shrine in downtown Manhattan. Why did they keep spending money on building astonishing banks if everyone is remembering Grandma Lost Everything? Well, they wanted them to forget. And they did. At the dawn of the Roaring Twenties, Bowery built a skyscraper atop America's first branch bank. 70 feet high.
15: 200 feet long.
14: And it's a branch bank.
15: Right, a branch bank.
14: (laughs) (laughs) It was called A Castle in the Clouds. Brought to Earth. A few years later, the economy came crashing to Earth. The stock market crash has
15: come, and the Great Depression has begun. Americans blame bankers for the Depression.
14: But after World War II, the economy booming and optimism rising, banks were back with a new message. I can almost see the pitch meeting with the, you know, the bankers around the table. We're building a new bank. And the architect says, transparency... That architect was Gordon Bunshaft. In 1954, his design for Manufacturer's Trust was a transparent building.
15: It almost seemed like, you know, the people inside would be more honest, you
14: know, about what they were doing. The vault sat right in the window, not 10 feet from Fifth Avenue. Today, the bank is gone, but the vault is still there, like a jeweled accessory in the window of Ellie Tahari's design store. That's it. And escalators that once conveyed customers to the banking floor...
15: And this is where the tellers would have been.
14: ...now carry shoppers through the flagship store of Joe Fresh. Ironic that an iconic bank has become a retail store, but fitting, says Charles Belfour, because the bank of today...
15: It's basically a financial supermarket.
14: No need to impress. Sit down, have some coffee.
15: Homey is a big word. They're more like, you know, your living
14: room. And what of the castles of yesteryear? Some have literally been brought to earth. But some survive and can still dress to impress.
8: Next. This is a lantern that also cooks. How design
3: can change the world.
10: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Frank Lloyd Wright designed Old Brass for the pure pleasure of its residents. A number of today's top designers are taking a broader view, creating practical items for people with more basic needs. Luke Burbank has been sampling their wares.
7: What comes to mind when you hear the word design? A sleek new phone you can wear like a watch? Maybe a fancy sports car? Most of us see design as something that makes our lives easier, safer, better.
14: Such an easy meal to put together.
7: But do they feel that way in the developing world? Of course they do.
5: I think the notion that because somebody is poor, they don't have the same appreciation for uh, beauty or function is completely erroneous. It's incredibly insulting if you really
7: think of it. Eve Behar is one of the country's top industrial designers, and for him, design is more than just a job. It's a lifestyle. He designed the offices of his San Francisco company, Fuse Project, and they stand as a sort of museum to all he's made. It would sense my phone as I approach it. And yet one of his proudest achievements isn't something he made for Prada or Samsung. It's a pair of $5 eyeglasses. There's a great proverb I learned from Finland that says the poor can't afford
5: bad design, cheap design, low quality design. Why? Because
7: you have to buy it again, because it breaks down. The glasses, millions of pairs, are being worn by Mexican school children. They're designed with a very special material
5: uh, called Grilamid, and that material uh, withstands high levels levels of distortion, um, which is important for, you know, when you're a kid. You you probably often sit on those glasses, so they need to survive childhood,
7: I guess. The Mexican government hired Behar to solve a problem. Poor kids who needed glasses were choosing to go without them rather than wear the decidedly unstylish pairs the government had been handing out. Behar's design changed that. Every child you you provide with a pair of eyeglasses is actually going to become a better learner. Cheap, durable glasses are one thing, but what about a cheap, durable computer for kids in the developing world? Yep, he designed one of those too. The criteria that were brought to us at the beginning
5: of the project were tremendously difficult to think of at the time. A $100 laptop that could be powered with a fifth or less
7: of the amount of energy that it takes to power a laptop here. With education. We Today, more than 3 million of these inexpensive laptops are in use from Cambodia to Brazil. They're even celebrated on an Uruguayan stamp and on Rwandan money. I actually you don't even know of any other design ever that's ended up on a on nation's money.
8: When will we live a simple life?
7: Dean still hasn't seen any of his designs show up on any cash yet.
8: This can boil five liters in 11 minutes, so it's very fast. But he's
7: hoping that what he's creating here in an old Oregon logging town will have the same kind of impact.
8: Our goal is wood burned as
7: clean as natural gas for 25 years he and his team at aprovecho research have obsessively worked towards a sort of holy grail of humanitarian design an affordable safe stove for the nearly three billion people around the world cooking over open flames which damage the environment and their health why is it so important to find a solution to this
8: stove problem wood smoke is about the same as cigarette smoke. So if a woman is cooking with the kid, they're breathing the equivalent of four packs of cigarettes a day.
7: Except this isn't some voluntary choice. This is something to stay alive, right? To cook food.
8: Their poverty is, in effect, killing them.
7: An estimated four million people die each year from breathing the smoke from their stoves. The goal of Aprovecho, is to create $10 stoves that produce almost no toxic smoke and still cook great food. Not a simple task. How is that accomplished here? Because there's not really a chimney.
8: No. So this stove has very fast little jets of air that are mixing all of the smoke and the gas into the flame. And it's mixing it so well that it's getting all burned up.
7: But there's no such thing as one perfect universal stove because people in each region of the world cook food differently.
8: This is a a griddle stove for making tortillas from Honduras. Here's a high-powered Chinese stove for boiling water. This is a stove from India for making chapatis. And here is an African charcoal stove for making fufu.
7: And for the nearly one in five people still living without electricity? It goes for 70 minutes on a charge of wood. Aprovecho recently found a way to solve two problems at once. It's called the firefly.
8: This is a, a lantern that also cooks. So we figured that people might want to be able to see at night to read and whatever or to prepare the food and also to cook.
7: Wow. So this can boil water and provide light. That could change somebody's life, right? I hope
8: so. You know, I hope so.
7: Forget iPhones and sports cars. This is light where there wasn't any before. Its design, that truly makes a difference.
5: A beautifully made, well-made, high-quality product is understood exactly
9: in the same way here than it is somewhere else. Coming up, hitting the heights. Oh boy, with Mo Rocca. Hi. How are you? Good to see you. I'm a friendly person.
10: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
3: Washing the windows of this ground-level dining room is one thing, but washing big city windows dozens of floors up, that's quite another, as Mulracker knows full well. The world over, skyscrapers are reaching
9: new heights, we all know what it looks like from street level. But I wanted the view from up high, the truly unobstructed view.
16: Very quiet. It's peaceful. There's always music going on in your head. So being on heights is the perfect
9: place to be. Should I also wear a parachute? For 32 years, Andy Horton has been washing windows on New York City's skyscrapers. Do you see things that, that the rest of us don't see down on, on the ground? Yes, <laughs> You see some crazy things up there. Some things you can talk about, some things you can't. How much nakedness have you seen? Way too much. Um, In the beginning, it was great. Now it's just part of your routine. This is the D-ring, which has to wind up in the center of your back. Horton is also the window-washing union's head safety trainer. He's the guy to see if you want to do this job and live to tell about it. Uh, Your waist strap, which you're going to put in. On the roof of Seven World Trade Center... Now we're going to do the legs, one at a time. Andy rigs me up. This is a job with very real hazards. And you're ready to go. Just last fall, next door at the 104-story One World Trade Center, one of the cables on the window washer's basket came loose, leaving two workers dangling outside the 68th floor for over an hour and a half. I'm
6: Mo. So, How you doing, Jesus?
9: Strapped into my safety harness, I meet my coworker for the day, Jesus Rosario. Checking in. We're ready to go out and clean some windows. The crane well. hoists our basket up and out. Oh, boy. Into thin air. Oh, we're swinging. The Brooklyn Bridge looks great. Oh, look, the Statue of Liberty. Yep. New Jersey. And Andy Horton was right. Up this high, you can't help but hear the music. I'm on the top of the world looking down on creation. We secure our basket to the side of the building and begin the greatest ride to work Ever. ever since you've been around, you always put me at the top of the world. Oh, he's eating. Hi, how are you? It's my first time. Look, she's got a, a neat desk. Good to see you. Do you ever wave to the other window washers?
0: Yeah, yo! How you doing? <laughs> it's
9: a beautiful day! We clock in at the 38th floor.
6: Get your wand first, you put your hand in there, and it's the strap, so the thing don't fail, right? and you start on corners, okay? You come scrubbing hard, hard scrubbing, because it's not gonna come out easy. Try not to get your body into it. Don't move the one moving your body like this. Okay. Just wrist, you know? Yeah. Everything on the wrist. Man, you're like a ninja with that. When you're ready to squeegee, there you go. All the way up in that corner, corner. take it all the way around the house, Two. all the way down, corner. bring it back up this corner.
9: And then I'm going back up here. And now you get the corners. And, and I'm in just the middle. like this. And I'm just going like this. Tiring work. And I'm just coming like that and I'm coming. But back fairly straightforward. Yeah. So was the giant glass box that we're cleaning. New York has seen this explosion of very modern looking buildings. Washing windows on those buildings. Is it a fun
6: challenge? It's frustrating. It's fun looking at it, because it's beautiful buildings, but it's making it so dangerous. You can see triangle windows, circle windows, it's crazy, these designs.
9: But somebody's gotta do it. Oof. Let's face it. Dirty windows don't
16: reflect well. I will not go into any restaurant or store that has dirty windows. If you treat your windows like that, what are you going to do when I walk in as a customer?
9: I made it worse.
3: Up next, hot stuff.
10: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
1: Whistling tea kettles have been letting off steam.
16: It's just a (laughs) great, sweet sound.
1: For at least 100
16: years. It's primal. TO BE ABLE TO PUT SOMETHING ON A STOVE AND START WITH FIRE, IT'S JUST SO ELEMENTAL.
1: AND INSTRUMENTAL, GUSHES DONALD Strom, HEAD OF PRODUCT DESIGN AT MICHAEL GRAVES IN PRINCETON, NEW JERSEY. A HAPPY MELODY TELLING YOU
16: THE WATER IS BOILING. IT JUST ALWAYS MAKES ME SMILE mm-hmm. AND IT DOES ITS JOB REALLY WELL.
1: AND IN 1984, Strom DID HIS JOB REALLY WELL. His boss, design legend Michael Graves, set out to improve on the classic whistling tea kettle. He enlisted Strom, who was just fresh out of college.
16: And he asked, would you be interested in working on a project this summer, the Alessi Whistling Bird Tea Kettle? I was planning on going on a bike ride across country. And I quickly squashed that notion.
1: So it's tea kettle, bike <laughs> ride, yeah. and yeah. you chose the tea kettle. Mm-hmm. Smart choice. The Alessi Whistling Bird tea kettle, named after Italian designer Alberto Alessi, who commissioned it, has since sold well over a million.
16: It just anchors the kitchen. <laughs> you know, it just otherwise the kitchen the kitchens just looks just running amuck. You I don't mean.
1: want your kitchen to run amok.
16: No, <laughs> you don't. You don't.
1: For starters, consider the unusual contour.
16: The conic shape was brought about because the water actually boiled faster.
1: Then there's the handle.
16: We wanted something that would speak to the hand, and those little undulations said, hold me here.
1: This does not get hot. And did we mention the color? Red spout, warning hot, blue handle, cool enough to touch. Is it true that you looked at 15 to 20 different shades of blue?
16: Oh, we did. We ran the spectrum of all different types of blue.
1: And let's not forget that trademark little bird.
16: It looks like the hood ornament of a luxury vehicle. If you look at the relationship of the bird whistle to a Rolls-Royce, they actually carry the same gesture if you take a close look at it, so.
1: (laughs) I must say I haven't done that. I will show you. (laughs) Next time I get in (laughs) my rolls, I'll be sure to check. (laughs) No rolls, no problem. Just enjoy your tea. But take a sec (laughs) and enjoy the kettle as well.
10: I'm stuck on Band-Aid brand, because Band-Aid stuck on me.
3: Coming up, a sticky subject.
10: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
17: This Band-Aid is from 1938. Wow. 94 years ago, Band-Aids hit the market, and they've stuck around ever since. I think the Band-Aid meets a need. I like those water bubbles. Sarita T.
1: Finney says it's no accident that so many of our accidents are covered up by Band-Aids. It's by design.
17: A good design will solve a problem, but a great design is intuitive and simple and timeless.
1: Finney leads global wound care at Johnson & Johnson.
17: I like to tell people that I'm in the boo-boo business. (laughs) (laughs) Ask her
1: anything, anything, about Band-Aids, and she will know the answer. I remember this infuriatingly persistent jingle. (laughs)
10: I'm stuck. Brand, uh, whose right. idea was
17: that uh, it was Barry Manilow's idea actually Ooh. So Barry- <laughs> okay Barry
1: Manilow you might have guessed but you've probably never heard of a guy named Earl Dixon the year was 1920
17: he was very worried about his young wife Josephine who was always cutting and burning herself in the kitchen so Josephine's a klutz I'm sure she was a lovely woman <laughs>
1: Dixon, a cotton buyer for Johnson &
17: Johnson, had an inspiration. He combined this first aid tape and this gauze to create the first ready-made bandage.
1: Almost a century later, Band-Aids are in roughly one out of every seven American
17: homes. Last year, we produced 220 million boxes of Band-Aids. That's six billion strips (laughs) AND THAT IS ENOUGH TO CIRCLE THE PLANET EARTH 12 AND A HALF TIMES. (laughs) AND AT THE HEART OF EVERY STRIP IS THAT SAME CLASSIC DESIGN. THE NEW YORK TIMES ACTUALLY DID A RANKING OF THE TOP 100 INVENTIONS OF ALL TIME. FIRE WAS ON THAT LIST AND BAND-AID WAS ALSO ON THAT LIST.
1: THERE'S EVEN A BAND-AID IN THE DESIGN COLLECTION AT NEW YORK CITY'S MUSEUM OF MODERN ART. NO KIDDING.
3: I'm Charles Osgood. We hope you've enjoyed our visit to Brass Plantation and that you'll join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio.
0: If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music.